Hello again, everyone, and welcome back to the Dr. Treefruit podcast. It's Monday, May 4th, 2020. I'm Don Seifert, Extension Educator with Penn State. I have with me Dr. Carrie Peter, Dr. Treefruit, and this week we have a special guest, Dr. Rob Crassweller. Rob, would you mind introducing yourself and telling folks a little bit about yourself? Sure, thanks, Don. Uh, I'm Rob Crasswell. I'm the extension horticulturist. I handle all things relating to propagation and pruning and training. And right now we're worried about frost and also fruit set. So I'll be talking about that a little bit later with Don. Cool. So thanks for that. Thanks for joining us. Carrie, I'll let you start it off in case there's anything you want to go over after we discussed, I guess, close to two weeks ago now. What are things looking like down in Biglerville? Well, right now we're in full bloom to petal fall, depending on the tree, the cultivar tree, the trees that are out there. As far as disease issues go, I mean, it's been quite cold. Scab's always a problem. But of course, everyone's always concerned about fire blight this time of year with the, with the open blossoms. But we have not had conducive fire blight weather. So this is a year where we could probably skate by with, you know, with really no opportunity that we need to treat the blossoms. However, I say that based on what the models say, but the last three days have averaged around 60 degrees or higher. And so I've, I've recommended folks just to spray their blossoms just this once, just to clean up everything that could potentially be out there just as a, a peace of mind sort of deal. Can never be too careful when it comes to preventing fire blight. So I know a lot of growers are doing that. Great. So Rob, what are conditions up like at State College? What are we looking at for the trees up there? Well, we're uh, behind, obviously, because we're back in a higher elevation and a little colder. So right now we're looking at some things are out with king bloom and a little bit past, and other things are really held back. So it all depends by variety. Sure. Carrie and I touched on this a little bit when we talked about ice nucleation proteins and all of that other good stuff, frost damage. One of the reasons you wanted to come on here today with us is to talk about frost damage and frost prevention strategies, so I'll, I'll let you go. Um, what are some things growers should be looking out for when it comes to frost damage? Well, the first thing we need to do is determine what type of frost it's going to be. We have basically two types. There's advective and there's a radiation. The advective, there's not a whole lot you can do, but what it is is when you get a cold air mass, a polar vortex, so to speak, that comes down from Canada that's just cold, and there's just no any warm areas in, in the area at all. Radiation frost, however, is where you have what we call an inversion. And an inversion is when you have a layer of warm air overlaying a layer of cold air. You may see, if you ever started up a fire in the fall and you see your, your fireplace rises up and smoke rises up so high and then all of a sudden flattens out, that indicates an inversion. And so that's what you kind of look at. You've got an air, area where the cold air is down low to the ground and the warm air is above. So when we're looking for frost, you know, we have to be able to get something like that. There's things we can do. We can uh, burn uh, fires, we can run sprinklers. Really the best type of protection, of course, is some type of uh, site selection, being able to be up high elevation and having good air drainage. So if site selection fails, right, if we wind up getting frost damage anyway, how can we tell how severe that damage is? Well, there's a couple of ways you can do that. One, of course, is uh, just go out and look at the flowers after severe frost. We had one back in the 17th of April, Friday morning, get down, looking around the state, got anywhere, I think the lowest I had was 25 degrees Fahrenheit. 
And then uh, we had others listed around 26, 25, 27. But what you will do is you go back and you look at the flowers, pull the flowers off, open them up, and the very center is where we call the pistil. And that's the female part of the flower. That's what's going to turn into the apple or the peach. And if that is black or brown, you better kiss those flowers goodbye because they're dead. So there's not a whole lot you can do once they're dead, obviously. Correct. But the advantage is we only need to have maybe 2 to 5% of the fl entire flowers to set. And so consequently, if you don't lose all your flowers, then you, can, you have a good chance for having a crop that year. Looking at what I've seen around and talking to people, it looks like we still have a chance for a decent crop right now because we still have enough percentage flowers alive that we will get some. But again, it'll vary by variety. Sure, that makes sense. Now, the question I would have, and I think folks that might not have done this as long might have is, so I have a bunch of crop loss. How do I know if I need to thin or not? Because that's one thing we always discuss a lot in spring meetings is thinning. And for those of us that might have been doing this for a less long period of time, thinning is one of those things that everyone says you need to do it, but some of the intricacies of thinning are, are hard to understand. So should we thin even after frost damage or? I would say based on what I've seen so far that I think you will be needing to do some type of thinning application. Again, it will depend on variety. It will depend on location. It will depend on elevation. I know uh, some people did, Jim Shoup did some uh, estimation on peaches and found out there's quite an effect where the higher the elevation, the more flower buds there were, whereas the lower there's more damage. So what the growers need to do is go out and look at each block by variety and kind of make an estimation. And there's ways that you can do it. You know, normally you would take a look at uh, around 100 flower clusters and see what the damage is and get a percentage of that. But again, remember, all we need is 2 to 5% of those flowers, and we're going to have to end up thinning. That's good to know. You talked a little bit about that frost mitigation techniques. Would you mind going into those a little more in depth, things like lighting fires in the orchard or using fans, that sort of thing? Yeah, the old-fashioned way was you used to light large flat fires and try to warm up the air when you had, to, had that inversion. In other words, you try to heat up the atmosphere that was below that cold layer and then go back and warm the whole thing up. What you want to do, if you're going to do fires, somewhere, it's better to do a lot of smaller little fires than one huge, great big fire. If you have one huge, great big fire, it can just pop a hole through that inversion layer and all the heat goes up throughout the atmosphere. So small fires scattered throughout the orchard, particularly concentrating in your low areas. Another methodology is to use fans to move or to try and pull the warm air that's in the inversion, pull that down into the surface. Now, a lot of farms have these huge uh, orchard fans that can suck that air down in. Another way, though, is just sometimes you get small fans that you can attach to a tractor and the PTO just blow the air or suck the air down through, particularly through dips in your orchard, and try and pull warm air down in there. Those are really the two major ones. The third last one is something that I did a lot of work on was we used at Rock Springs is we have overtree irrigation for forming ice. And what we'll do is we apply ice or water to the orchard over the trees to form continual sheet of ice. So we continually form ice. And as long as you're forming ice, the temperature will be maintained on those flower buds at about 32 degrees Fahrenheit, which of course is right at the freezing point, but it doesn't cause damage, doesn't go down below. 
So those are really the three major ways that most growers in Pennsylvania can uh, utilize trying to get around frost protection. Excellent. So talking about the physiology of the plants and the flowers, I know that as the flowers progress, they become more susceptible to cold damage. Would you be able to talk about at what stage we need to worry more and more about what temperature things drop down to? Any stage you can worry about temperature. It depends on how cold the temperature is. Generally speaking, you know, if we get down below 28, when the trees are in full bloom, get below 28, that's where you're going to see your most damage. You can get damage even when their flowers are tightly clustered, no, we call tight cluster, or when they're you know, just open cluster where the flowers are just open. So it all depends on the stage of flowering and how cold the temperature. And you can get them when they're dormant too. You know, it's not unusual. We used to have, I can remember having peach crop totally wiped out when we had temperatures in January of minus 24 Fahrenheit. It just really depends the stage of flowering and also what the maximum or minimum temperature it uh, develops to. There is tables in our production guide that talk about that, and, and it depends on what not only the stage of flowering, but also what fruit crop it is. And, you know, those things you can look up very easily. Great. Yeah, that was my question there. Thanks. Terry, let's talk a little bit about your experiments and your, your field work right now, if you don't mind. We kind of had a lull in some diseases and last time we talked, and this time we were talking about a lengthened bloom time. We're still seeing that. You're still seeing that, you said. Is there any other discussion that you'd like to have about that? Well, it's as far as for fire blight goes, the question yes. about fire blight. So, you know, it's been a, I've gotten a lot of questions about that because, you know, a lot of things are timed by phenology because things take a certain amount of time for them to kick in. So like, for instance, some of these plant immune system inducers, uh, it, it, you need to get them on the trees before technically the fire blight bacteria would see them. So it, this has been a tricky year of trying to time things because, you know, typically, you know, in the years past, pink from pink to blue has been, you know, a week, five to seven days. Well, this year, pink went on for weeks. And so trying to strategically time these sprays has been really challenging. I mean, if I'm a grower, it's challenging. And as an experimenter, a researcher, it's been very challenging because I've actually had to repeat applications to make sure that I'm, I have the product on the tree at a particular time, so it needs to do what it needs to do. Um, so this, this year has brought upon me many challenges of how to, to juggle the timing of some things. And in juggling it, juggling the timing, I've done just repeated applications that have been, you know, several days apart. Usually my challenge is trying to get everything on in a short period of time. This is the first time where I've had a really long bloom period, a really long time frame to be able to put on my treatment sprays, but I'm still not 100% certain if things took out there because our weather conditions just haven't been favorable for fire blight. So it'll be a really interesting year all the way around for us. You know, when I'm doing my fire blight trials, I put the bacteria in the blossoms um, to, to make things go because I can't rely on Mother Nature, especially a year like this one. I can't rely on her to make sure all the planets align properly in order for me to do the trial. So I have to, I have to uh, actually, you know, 
be I actually have to put the bacteria out there in the bloom so you know I think it'll be interesting to see what works you know this would be uh, in years like this this is when I'm really curious about softer products alternative products because there's the I believe there's a place for alternative products especially or organic products uh, in years where the disease pressure is not too great also it gives this an understanding of when to time them like if if they work in years where the disease pressure isn't great that that suggests to me that these alternative products will work uh, better at a time period in the fire blight disease cycle or the or the fire blight projected time period when the disease pressure is an extreme and so it just it gives data is data regardless of something works or not and so this will be I'm really anxious to see how this year pans out with regards to particularly my fire blight trials because this is the most unique year I've experienced since I've been working at Penn State and been working on fire blight so and that was 2013 was my first season and this has been by far the weirdest weirdest bloom period <laughs> I've encountered um, so we'll we'll see how things turn out on that front did that answer your question yeah that was great thank you so it's really funny that you say it's been one of the weirdest bloom seasons that you've seen. The folks that are listening to this won't be able to see this, but Rob has his Zoom background up and it's snow sitting on a tree with in bloom. Actually, would you mind talking about that a little bit? Yeah, uh, I did have, a, I've been here a long time. And uh, that was back, the image I had that Don's referring to is when uh, back in 2016, we actually had snow and I had uh, trees in full bloom, they had snow on them. And we still carry a crop. So, you know, it, it's, it's weird. You never know exactly. The textbook says if it gets to 28, boom, you don't have any proof. If it gets 27, you don't have any proof. But in reality, there's all kinds of leeway that way. And, and there's a lot of things that, you know, you can't really say uh, verbatim when you're working in proof. And so, you know, I think that's why, that's why I'm optimistic. I think there will be a proof crop uh, maybe light in some areas, in some areas, in some uh, orchards, but certainly I think we'll still have some fruit. Assuming again, now we don't have something that, you know, dramatic come through. I understand tonight, which is, you know, there's a talk about the possibility of frost again, but we don't mention that that word at all in the spring. That's something you don't talk <laughs> about. You know, I think we will walk it by. I think it will be something, I can remember now 2012, we had no crop whatsoever here. I think I picked 35 bushels out of normally out of the research plots that normally I'm picking four or 5,000. And so that's quite a delay. But that's the only time in my tenure here at Penn State that we had a total wipeout. And that goes back into the 80s when I, since I've been here. That's good insight. That's great insight, actually. And I think for folks that might be a little worried about how things are looking with extended bloom and very cold temperatures this spring. I think that's a really good anecdote to to have in the back pocket. Yeah, I think you have to have that. There's, you know, that's you know that's what you always do is, is you always say there's always going to be something that'll come out of it. You learn something, and, and I agree with Carrie that that this is a unique year. I mean, I have not seen this long a bloom period either, where we have uh, I've got stuff as I've indicated stuff that's in close to full bloom and stuff that you know, the flowers are still real tight, and so. This is one of your, everybody should be taking notes of what happens. That's an excellent piece of advice. I have been attempting to make sure that I keep every bit of information I can 
from the last several years from when I've started here and, and you guys have been really great to learn from so well I was telling Don earlier that I've got galas on different rootstocks different ages all within eye shot of each other and they all bloomed at different times yeah. and it's they're all galas and so it's just been uh, and gala is the uh, that's the cultivar I do my fire blight work on so it's been really challenging to to time everything but you know um, from the research perspective when you're dependent on mother nature I just I just take one day at a time and so it's you know I I, I kind of I get my defenses up and my adrenaline pumping and you know I just look at each day and as it comes and then look forward to when petal fall is completely done. <laughs> well I've got to wait longer I gotta wait till harvest. Uh, well yeah well that too but for me fire blade is my most intense period so this is when I lose sleep so. So Rob Carrie a couple weeks ago uh, when we started this I guess it's close to a month um, she and I talked about projects that she had running Right now, this time in normal years, you guys would be on the road three plus days a week doing spring twilight meetings. Since COVID-19 has occurred and, and we're all so properly socially distancing, and that hasn't been the case. Are there any experiments that you'd like to talk about? Obviously, if you're going to talk about them in the virtual twilight meetings, that's fine. But those folks that might miss that, this would be a good opportunity to talk about that. I appreciate that. We're, well, basically, I tend to do more long-term experiments. Uh, we've got you know, new plantings. I've got a new planting of uh, gala on 11 different rootstocks that we just put in last year. I was out looking at it this morning, and there's going to be fruit on it. Here we are planting them last year, and we're going to have fruit on them. And uh, so I'm looking forward to getting the you know, work with that. We are still doing our work in cooperation with Cornell and Virginia Tech and a whole bunch of schools on the east. We're looking at the impact of rootstocks on the occurrence of uh, bitter pit. Bitter pit, of course, is a calcium deficiency, and we seem to think that there may be uh, effects of rootstock on reducing bitter pit. In other words, some rootstocks may move calcium up better than other rootstocks, and so we're going to be looking at that. That's kind of a current uh, project. Also, we're doing projects with ag engineering. We're going to try doing uh, drones to use uh, count flower clusters and then be able to see, fruit and see if we can get a relationship so that we could just do everything, monitoring the number of flowers and fruit set just by flying a drone or unmanned drones through the air and uh, determining what our crop may be. So there's, these are the kinds of things that we work on you know, pretty much on a steady basis, got different training systems. So, you know, one thing we were going to do, we were going to do some hedging this year. Unfortunately, because of the COVID, I can't get the hedger back up here. So the hedger's down at fruit research station where Carrie is, and uh, you can't, you know, get, get send people down to pick it up because we can't do the travel. So we'll have to wait on that. Gotcha. Yeah, thank you. It's one of those things. It's most of the folks that are probably going to wind up listening to this are folks that hear you guys talk pretty often. But I know that for some of the folks that are new to the industry who might not have are might not be as intimately familiar with your guys work as some of the more involved growers. I thought this might be a nice chance to, to kind of talk about your guys long term studies and, and what you guys do in a day to day. Carrie took the opportunity a couple weeks ago to talk about her grad students, which was really great. So that was, you know, just to get folks behind the scenes on what you guys do when it comes to research. I think that was a, a fun opportunity. Well, the one thing I do a little bit different, now Carrie comes up and helps, but one thing I do is I'm going to be teaching the tree fruit class 
hopefully this fall. Hopefully it's live and not Zoom. So the Gary would come up every year and give uh, guest lecture disease problems and how to uh, avoid them and things that are problematic. I usually bring up Greg Krawcheck also for the entomology part. And Jim Shoup has also talked a little bit about uh, some of the work he's doing. But that's the one thing that I have a little bit different than, than uh, she does. We're hoping normally, you know, we go out and have a couple days of lecture. And then uh, in the fall, uh, we have a three-hour lab. We go out in the orchards and we work out in the orchards uh, for 10 of the 15 weeks, with uh, two weeks being uh, orchard visits during the lab and then uh, two being uh, exams. But so we try and get them out, get students, get hands-on experience. Nice. Another thing different, well, I should say, you know, another difference with uh, between Rob and I is that, uh, you know, I don't know how often Rob gets growers stopping in unannounced, uh, <laughs> well, you know, like we do at the fruit lab, which is the, you know, the benefit of being here. I mean, while we were talking, I had someone who I, I was surprised who was here poke their head in while we were doing this. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. And I think, you know, everyone thinks of you guys as the specialists or whoever else, and they think of you as just one block of, of folks, but you all very much have your own individual programs and things that you do, and and it's important to, to remember that. You guys all do great work, and it's been an absolute pleasure to work with you guys, but uh, it's they're very different fields sometimes and very different experiences that you guys have all working under the banner of Penn State, so. You guys keep us keep us on our toes. That's for sure. Oh, I'm glad to hear that. I don't really have anything else. Rob, if you have anything else as our guest, I'll let you be the first to, to say. Well, again, you know, just trying to emphasize that the growers need to go out and look and examine their orchards by varieties specifically this year and see where the damage is and what's not damaged. And as I said, they're going to be thinning for sure. The big thing, of course, with apple thinning is that we do it by uh, fruit size. And because we've got some flowers that are in petal fall, some flowers are in full bloom, and some flowers that haven't opened, that means you're probably going to have a lot of different sizes when it goes to, to thin. I was talking to Rich Marini this morning, trying to figure out, we'll talk about that at the next Twilight meeting, but how to decide when you should apply your thinners. And that's going to be a difficult thing for the growers this year, and that's what they really need to take notes on for this year. Make sure they know what they did in this crazy year. Gary? As far as it looks like rain is still in the forecast and folks need to still be mindful of their fungicide sprays right now. Um, we're on the tail end of apple scab uh, or on the, 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 I should say, the other side of the peak. And so, which is a good thing. Um, so folks still need to be vigilant probably for the next two weeks. And I suspect we'll have some rain events based on the forecast. So um, people still need to keep their fungicides on their trees. Sounds good. Thank you, Rob. Thank you, Carrie, once again, for another very successful episode of the podcast. And Rob, if you would like to come back, you let me know and I will happily bring you on. Okay. All right. All right. We can do that. Thank you both.